Welcome to APQC's podcast. I'm Holly Lake Hoagland, Principal Research Lead for Process and Performance Management. I'm joined today by a few of my colleagues, Lauren Trees, the Principal Research Lead for Knowledge Management, Andrea Stroud, Senior Statistician, and Ben Knoll, Senior Survey Strategist. Today, we're going to explore some tips and tricks around conducting solid research. So what's up first is really what in all of everybody's experience is the biggest challenge in either qualitative or quantitative research that you've seen? Uh, Lauren, you want to go first? I think it's great that I'm going first because I was really thinking about the front end of research, finding the right people to ask and making it worth their while to participate. It's one thing when you're asking about opinions or sentiment, or it's something that a lot of people can take or, or give you feedback on. But I find when you get into the kind of detailed benchmarking we do at APQC, or, or you really want to understand how something works, there's usually a limited number of people who can actually answer those questions. And those people tend to be very busy with their day jobs. Maybe they have concerns about how their information is used. And so obviously you can offer incentives for people to participate, but that can skew your results as well if people are participating to get an Amazon gift card or something like that. So I think finding and zeroing in on those people and, and making them see the value in your survey or sitting down for an interview. So those are some of the biggest challenges that I have. Kind of cutting through the noise since there's a ton of people out there asking everybody's opinions or, or what they're doing and, and finding a way to engage the writing audience in a way that's going to provide good, valuable research. Um, ben, what in your opinion is kind of the biggest challenge you see? Uh, so from my experience, both looking at my own research products that I've created, as well as consuming and reading others, is just the importance of effectively communicating research findings to your target audience. It seems like it would be a no-brainer, but the number of times that I have forgotten that, oh yeah, not everyone has this level of like in, in knowledge about the exact research process and everything, I need to make sure to be able to explain it in a way that a wide general audience will be able to understand. And so, so that's something that um, I think that everyone could benefit from is just thinking through, we communicate with our colleagues in one way, but oftentimes our research is intended to be disseminated to a much wider audience. Think about what assumptions should we remember that they don't share or perhaps um, specialized knowledge that they don't have that would make us better able to communicate that knowledge uh, to them. All right. And that kind of goes in line with a lot of the stuff we see when we talk about data and storytelling, right? being able to communicate something in a language that other people can understand insights from. Um, they may not have the same jargon or the same depth of expertise. Andrea, um, what is your opinion on what do you see as the biggest challenge? So um, one of the things I see as a big challenge, it kind of piggybacks off of Ben's in the communication area, but just being very clear in how you report out data um, and especially doing it in a very ethical manner because there's a lot of number fetidization where um, in research, sometimes you'll see people that when you report out a number, they only focus on one thing. So it's it's important to tell the whole story and take a holistic view of the data. Um, a good example of this is really when people, you know, they'll look at a cost measure, for example, in benchmarking and they'll see the lower cost and they get really excited. But they need to keep reading. And you have to make sure you provide the detail because even though they have a lower cost, there have been cases where organizations have underfunded certain programs or they had, you know, if you dig deeper, um, you may find that they, you know, cut people out or cut um, technologies out that are actually needed for the program to be successful. So even though you see the lower cost, you may see um, a, a much lower overall satisfaction. You may see 
um, employees not as happy about certain things. So you just want to make sure that when you're looking at the data and when you're providing feedback about the data, you give, you know, a full view. So you may give an overall um, view of the data or across industry, but you may look at the data by industry. You may look at it by region, um, organization size to really kind of get at, you know, why the data looked the way it, it did. Um, so I think that's important. And then the other challenge I've seen um, is really around people, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation. And so people will often say that because one thing correlates, it, it doesn't mean that it caused something to occur. So being very clear about that in the way you communicate your research is extremely important. Right. So the context around the information is incredibly vital to being able to actually use research and information and apply it. And I know, yeah, there's always that struggle with causation and correlation just because they correlate and you think it's one direction. It actually may be the other direction in a lot of ways um, because you're not controlling for some of the other variables that could be influencing it. And one of the big challenges I always see is going back to kind of that front end that Lauren talked about, which is really scoping your research appropriately, mm -hmm. right? Research can't answer every question that everybody may absolutely have around a topic. Um, and it's really easy to have scope creep, right, in your research, understanding what is the purpose of why we're asking questions so that we can really then focus on not the nice to have questions, but the ones that are actually going to provide valuable insights. Now, it's really easy then to just like, oh, I'd really like to also include this little piece of information, which is kind of corollary, but not really kind of helping us focus in on that thing. So, all right. Thank you, guys. Well, and that kind of leads into the, the second question we wanted to talk to you guys about, which is how do you make sure your methodology is fit for purpose? Um, ben, I want to get started with your perspective on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a great question. And the bottom line answer is there's no one size fits all approach, <laughs> right? Uh, every question that you have is going to have a slightly different um, way that would be the most effective, or there might be multiple effective ways to go about answering it. Um, just speaking in broad terms, you know, the biggest categories of research are, of course, quantitative and qualitative. And there's all kinds of uh, resources out there to help with those. But basically, think about what is the question that you want to answer? What do you want to be able to say? If you're thinking about things like you want to be able to measure something precisely and you want to be able to compare things across categories, thinking about like, for example, oh, we want to know the ratio of this across different industries. Well, in situations like that, a quantitative approach will be uh, the most effective way to do that. A quantitative approach, of course, focusing on gathering uh, numerical data and then being able to use uh, mathematical and statistical approaches to be able to analyze it to generate insights. And then, of course, there's qualitative research as well. Um, and I think that those kinds of approaches are better for when you really want to dig deep and understand the nuances of something and get in perhaps to exploratory research and thinking about things like, I want to understand this topic better and what are the questions I should even be asking in the first place? Like, for example, if you want to understand how a process uh, is working in a particular context, um, doing some one-on-one -on -one interviews with people and just ask them, so how's this tending to work? What are some unexpected hiccups that you've discovered along the way? What is really effective about this? And then being able to take that and continuing to refine the questions that you're asking uh, is a really effective approach in contexts and situations like that. All right, Andrea, um, from your perspective, how do you kind of make sure your methodology is fit for purpose as well? So I just make sure it's Again, like Ben really kind of touched on it in terms of like, it just depends on what type of research you're going to do um, as to the methodology you're going to use. But um, I would say making sure you define the methodology process um, that should be defined. It's not something you just kind of 
do as you go along. It's something that really needs to be clearly defined. And I would say doing your homework ahead of time. So kind of still doing that front end and seeing if, you know, there have been similar approaches that have been used and how they were used and making sure that, you know, taking this particular approach is going to get me what I what I need. Because sometimes, you know, people try to get a lot of information in one survey. Well, you may be able to get a certain amount of information in a survey and with metric data, but you may have to do interviews or, or get case study information in order to kind of dig in deeper. Um, so you have to decide what tool you're going to use and what method you're going to use um, to, to get you there. Okay, excellent. Now you guys are building you know, like uh, th there's always that it, it depends question when we're talking about laying out research, right? Really focusing then on what your end goal is and what's going to be the best fit. Um, Lauren, um, from your experience, how do you make sure you're picking the right methodology for purpose? Well, I agree with everything that Ben and Andrea said. I like to do a mix of quantitative and qualitative research. I think that I get the best insights that way. A survey can give you a broad idea of what people are doing in a particular space, what decisions correlate with certain outcomes, which tends to drive good performance. But when I get to the end of a survey, I usually have more questions like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why people are saying that or having that kind of outcome. And so to tease out that nuance, I think you really have to talk to people. And that's the approach that I see work best in our member organizations as well. But the best insight teams that I've talked to are looking at business data, survey data, but they're also doing interviews and focus groups. So I think you can get the, the broadest picture when you mix and match those two things. And I think that goes back to, I mean, kind of the scopey part where Andrea was also talking about um, doing your homework, right? Whenever you're going to tackle a research project, you're going to come up with your questions and then you're going to start doing your homework to find out what's out there. And that can help really drive where you're doing primary or secondary research, right? There's a lot of great data out there that you can harvest, and there's a lot of great insights out there. Um, and that can really help push, you know, what kind of data collection you need to do. But I also fall in line with you, Lauren. I love a combination of both whenever possible, um, because I feel like the any kind of quantitative information is going to give you, it's going to give you the guardrails and, and kind of give you the structure for what you're really kind of digging into. And then once you start doing that correlation analysis, I did the same thing, I'm like, Okay, so cool, these two things are correlated. How or why? And that's where the qualitative stuff really helps you dig into understanding that and then being able to provide, especially at APQC, our job in research is to also teach people and, and help them with best practices and, and, and do things either faster, better, or quicker based on experience of other people as well. So, excellent. All right, now I'm gonna kind of shift gears a little bit and dig a little bit more into both quantitative and qualitative research. Um, so I wanted to start with the idea of survey design. Um, that's always a big thing and something that it's really easy for people to get wrong. Um, so I wanted to start with Andre and Ben and, and get your perspectives on what are some of the key things to think about when you're designing a survey? Um, Andrea, can you go first? Yeah. So, you know, one of the key things first is to do to adequately do the pre-work. Um, so making sure you've done enough secondary research to understand the topic, you've talked to your SMEs, um, you really feel comfortable with the area and you've seen outcomes from other similar research and what that looks like. Um, because that really kind of helps you shape your hypotheses as well um, and, and really kind of define your research question further. Um, the other key piece I would say is clearly defining the purpose of your survey. So this, is, this really includes knowing you know, the goal of the survey, 
Um, you know, why are you creating the survey in the first place? You know, you know, what do you want to accomplish with this? You know, how do you plan to use the data that's been collected? And then, you know, what decisions will be made from this um, survey? So I would say that's also really important. Um, another key is keeping your survey focused on the topic at hand. So too often you'll actually see people try to throw everything in the kitchen sink into a survey with no real plan for the data. Um, you want to make sure that the survey questions align to the research questions and the hypotheses that you set in place. Before you even like create a survey, you really need to have your research questions and your hypotheses kind of set. And you may expand on that as the research goes, but you really should have a clear understanding of what you're going to what research you're going to go after. Um, you also want it focused, your survey very focused so that people um, one, actually want to take the survey. You don't want to have them try to figure out, you know, what, what it is that I'm really trying to give you information on because you'll have a higher dropout or incomplete rate. Um, and the, the cleaner and more focused the survey is, um, the more likely you'll have the same audience participate again in future surveys. And two other key points I just want to throw out really quick is making sure the survey flows in a logical order. Um, so you really kind of want to start from broader based questions and then move into more narrow and scope questions. It just makes it easier for the respondent to take the survey. And then the final one is making sure you pilot your survey. A lot of people forget the piloting phase It is extremely important. Um, it just really helps you check the methodology and make sure that the design of your survey makes sense before you send it to a larger audience. So those are the key things I would say people really need to focus on in terms of survey design. Making sure it's getting what you want out of it and that no question is not serving a purpose in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Um, and I think the other big point that you really hit on there is that it also has to be easy for people to take. A lot of times when people design surveys, they're so focused on what they want and what their questions should be. They don't actually think about the audience of the survey. I always like to think that people have 10 cents worth of their time, right? And every question has the potential to burn one of those pennies and, and create that drop off. If it's com complex question, if it's double barreled questions, you know, if it, it doesn't have good logical sense behind it so that people can easily intuit and understand and take that quickly, you know, um, to be able to just say, yes, this is this is where I fit on this Likert scale, which brings the other part, which is I think as I, every one of us on this call probably could agree is always make sure to um, anchor your Likert scales. Because if you got it on one end and the other, then the people aren't really going to understand what two, three, and four mean, which means, you know, again, you're creating extra stress on the people who are taking your survey because they're having to think extra hard and you don't really want them to do that. All right. So, so ben, Holly, go ahead. One quick, one quick thing just to kind of elaborate on that further with the uh, Likert skills. You want to also make sure that your skills are going in the same direction. So a lot of people, I've seen surveys where people will have the questions going in opposite directions. You never really want to have that because it gets really confusing to the respondent. Right. Yeah. And don't let our coding that we have to do on the background influence that. Right. So um, we always want to keep consistent on positive to negative scales. So it's comparable and it's less work in the long run for us. Okay. Excellent point. All right, Ben, from your perspective, what do people need to think about when they're designing a survey? Uh, great question. And I just want to add another um, 
bit of support to those points that were brought up about just the importance of being as clear and unambiguous as possible when you're constructing the various questions and designs and such. Um, I know in my own experience, um, sometimes I'll put together a question wording and thinking, oh, this is crystal clear. How could anyone misunderstand this? And then just show it to a few of like my friends or someone sitting next to me and show it to them and say, all right, how do you interpret this? And they give me some answer. I'm like, well, that's not what I intended. <laughs> so just the importance of that the pilot survey, right? To, to do the pilot stage, just to be able to do some beta testing before you put that out into the field. Um, because oftentimes, we, you know, we all have uh, assumptions that we just assume everyone else has, but, or interpretations of, you know, what do even different words mean and things like that. Um, and so that's really important just to go through and be as specific as possible with this. And not only just in the question wording, but also the the scope and the domain of the question on the topic that you're trying to get at. Uh, example, you might want to, like I was working on a survey just recently, asking a lot of questions about um, uh, an industry procurement measures and stats and metrics and things like that. And I can imagine someone saying like, oh, we just want to understand, you know, and it wasn't this particular project, but in a situation like this, someone might think to themselves, oh, I'll just ask, you know, well, how much do you spend on procurement? question mark, you know, and something like that, thinking that, oh, that's clear, you know, but um, being able to be as specific as possible and things like, okay, but are we talking about during a particular time period? Do we mean annually? Do we mean per person? Are we talking about total overall? Are we talking about for the entire organization or just your small department and your piece of it? Or how much are you personally allocating, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's important to realize that different people who are going to be taking the survey will come at this from different contexts and might make different assumptions about what they mean. And so sometimes it means adding some detail to the question, you know, how much are you spending here? But also, you know, some explainers. By this, we mean during this time period under these conditions and this here um, to try to make it so that the data that they're giving you is going to be conceptually consistent across different respondents. Um, and that's something that, you know, you can catch a lot of times with that beta testing and piloting procedures and things like that. Um, but I think that's something that's really important. Um, a second thing, too, not only with the question wording, but also the response options that are given in quantitative research. Um, it's it's more nuanced than one would think, right? Like we think it's like, oh, it's just a number, it's objective, et cetera, et cetera. But just depending on whether you present your respondent with, say, a yes or no answer, or a yes, no, or not sure answer, or a yes, no, not sure, or I never heard of this thing before. Each one of those will give you a very different picture, just depending on what options you get to them. And there's not really a right or wrong way to do it. It'll depend on the context and what you want to get at and what the concepts are. But just you, you might think that, oh, it's no big deal, but your answers can vary widely just depending on how many options that are given. And that's not even to mention, you could ask the same thing, say, in a like a one to 10 Likert scale, like we were just talking about. What kind of picture will that give you? Um, would it be better to phrase it as a multiple choice select one of these options. Um, oftentimes that's effective at getting at just the bottom line patterns, but oftentimes people taking surveys think like, well, I want to be able to pick multiple options because they're all important. And that might be the case where you say, sure, check all of the above. But if you're really trying to get at which of these things is the most important or the strongest, then a select only one and explain it to the respondent, um, which of these best fits this or which of these is most 
relevant in your case might be the appropriate and effective thing to do. Um, and that's something that, you know, not, uh, is, is just not intuitive a lot of the times. And so for that, I can highly recommend, you know, doing, um, a bit of background reading and research just on effective survey design. Uh, we'll put in the podcast notes. Um, I've got a couple of recommended books that, you know, are, and just pick up and get like a crash course on basic survey question design and answer response design and things like that. Um, and that goes a little bit of um, background preparation on that goes a long ways toward getting good, effective answers for the questions that you're asking. You made a lot of really great points. And I think some of it is like, especially if you've got select one or multi-selects is also making sure that the very the variable options aren't too cumbersome, right? So building a lot of the question in the question so that it's easier for them to just have like a, you know, one to five uh, word option to make it so much easier for them to look through, especially if you have a long list for multi-select in particular. Um, also including like another response, because as much as we try to come up with every potential variation that they can maybe choose from, um, we're going to miss something. And, and that gives us that ability to then have that information that, that we may have overlooked or we may not have been exposed to before. Um, and I think another thing, especially if you have multi-selects, you can either eat, having one option is always the best, but capping it to like say three, pick your top three. If you've got a long list or even better, another option is to rank, rank in importance or rank in value. Um, these options, it gives you other ways to be able to kind of look at that. With, you know, if we tell them to select all of fine, you've got 10 potential variables, they're likely to select, select six or seven of them. And that really just kind of drowns out any real value you're getting out of it. So, yes, Lauren. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about hearing about is how intention some of these best practices are for survey design because you want to be thorough, you want to be clear, but you also want to have a simple user experience and you can't have a four paragraph question because no one will ever get through your survey. So I think it's trying to figure out how to balance some of the simplicity and ease of taking the survey with making sure that you're clear and thorough in what you're asking. And that is always the challenge that I have when I'm writing surveys. And I think that we all face that challenge every time we, we develop a survey and 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 that. So that's right. a great point, Lauren. So that then is gonna actually lead me into the qualitative side of the house. I'm gonna pick on you for a minute, Lauren. So there in qualitative research, it's often described as both an art and a science. Um, so can you discuss how those two play out in good interviews? So there were three key points that I wanted to make, and I will preface this with the fact that the kind of interviews that I do don't require a lot of distance from the subject. So this is based on my own personal case study or focus group type interviews. The first one is really be realistic. You need to scope the number of questions and the level of detail to the time that you have and that person's willingness to share. And if you're trying to cram too much in, I find you tend to skim the surface and you're not getting that detail and nuance. That's the whole reason for doing qualitative research. The second one is to be curious. I have seen people get really focused on getting through their questions. And no matter what that person says, they're just getting to the next question. And you miss those opportunities to listen deeply and have those great follow-ups. What did you mean by that? Tell me more. 
wow, that sounds like a big issue. How'd you get around that? And if, if I want to know more as the interviewer, I, I suspect that the research audience will want to know more about that too. And you really want to get to the core of that insight, even if it means that maybe you don't get to cover something else in Israel. And then the final point that I wanted to make is just trying to build a relationship with the person that you're interviewing. The more comfortable that someone feels, I find the more willing they're they are to dig deep and, and give you the good stuff, uh, which in our business tends to be the how-to details, the key success drivers, the lessons learned. So just being authentic, and it helps if you can be in person or on video so you can see each other, and just trying your best to engage in a genuine conversation. Um, some kinds of interviews may require that more objectivity and distance from the subject, but I find that the kind of interviewing that I do really benefits from that relationship building piece. I think those are all great points and ones that I would always agree with uh, as far as especially the type of research we do, which is usually case study, practice research and things like that. Um, and that's why we tend to go with like semi-structured interview guides um, to, to kind of tackle that, that type of qualitative insights. I think what our rule of thumb is you usually try to go between six to 10 questions, depending on how complicated they are for an hour long interview. Because that gives us the chance to really then kind of dive in and 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 have that. I, I think the art part is also is is like subject matter experts and people have done these things for a long time. We have our own organic algorithms built into our brains, and so they're doing correlation analysis in the back of our heads, and we're like, okay, that there's something really valuable right there. That that's important. You need to dive into that, and so that's kind of where that art part comes from is is knowing when there's something that's unique. Or powerful that other people can learn from. Um, so, and the relationship, yeah, you have to build a rapport and you have to build that sense of trust for them to share the right kind of information. And then really then even talk about not just the good stuff, but also the bad stuff, because that also helps people really learn from each other as well. And here's some places we stumbled and here's how we fixed it um, is, is also, I think, really, really important in type of qualitative research we do. All right. So, the next question I want to move on to everybody is, so the big sticky question, which is, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, is there's a lot of noise out there. And there's a lot of organizations trying to get people to take surveys, do interviews, work in focus groups. What are some tips for better research participation? Andrea, I want to start with you and your perspective on that. So first, from just you know, we, we send out a lot of surveys and companies are, as you mentioned, sending out surveys to constantly try to get feedback and information. I would say the first is really knowing your target audience. And if you know you're going to do a project on a certain topic, make sure you're trying to grow that audience. So maybe you're sending out reports or white papers or having some level of communication, emails or something where you can you've already engaged them before you go and ask for them to participate in the survey. Um, and then knowing your audience also means that you know that the survey is going to the right people. So you're not reaching out to people where it wouldn't make sense if they took the survey, like the topic fits for them. Um, and then I would say it's really important to plan out communication and recruitment strategies in advance. Um, you know, that includes, you know, going where your audience is. So it may be an email send out. It may, you know, it may be a customer member contact list that you have. It may be a panel. It may be social media, but you have to go where your folks are. Um, and then the last one really is um, when some people participate in research, um, they ask, what is it? What's in it for me? Right. What's the with them? What's in it for me? 
And so you have to communicate how this research is really going to help contribute um, to others, to businesses, to, to whatever your goal is. Um, and it's always nice to offer them a copy of either your survey summary report or white paper um, or invite them to a webinar to discuss the findings. But make sure that they're getting something out of it and use that as an opportunity because it allows you to further connect with the audience in case you want um, future participation from them. Um, it just gives them a good research, a good survey experience um, to, 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 to make sure that you are closing uh, the feedback loop. So they've given information and then you're going to give them back, you know, the outcome of the research. All right. I think those are all three really great points is hone in on the audience because um, that also helps the what if, what's in it for me part. Right. If you're honing on to the appropriate audience, because it's going to be something they potentially care about providing that what's in it for me, whichever approach you do. And then that close the feedback loop to develop those long term relationships. So if people find value in the research that you've done and they're able to apply it because you shared it with them, then they're more likely to to do that as well. Um, ben, from your experience, what are some better, some good tips for better research participation? Uh, well, I don't have a whole lot to add of what Andrea talked about because those are, those are excellent points on that. Um, other than thinking about just, you know, what is, just think about human nature, right? Like when you've taken surveys before that other people have asked you to do, why do you finish them all the way? Like what factors of the surveys led you to actually stick in it and go all the way to the end versus which ones did you just drop out after halfway through? Cause you're like, wait a minute. I thought this was going to be five minutes long. Now this is ending up being 20, 30 minutes. And <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. Right. I budgeted this so much of my attention and you don't get any more. Right. So being um, just clear in the uh, upfront and then being able to, to prioritize, like everyone else said, what are the questions that we need to be asking, which would be nice to do, but aren't necessary. And which could we, you know, just do without and still accomplish our key, key goals here. And like Lauren was saying earlier, just getting that balance between getting enough information so that your research is valid and it's insightful and also not overburdening people and annoying them <laughs> with the questions that you're asking. So the more straightforward, simple that the question wordings can be phrased without them having to like the respondent, if the information's not readily available and they would have to like spend 20 minutes going to look up whatever thing that you're asking them for, like no one's going to do that unless they're a either getting paid to, or they're required by their you know employer to do it, you know, and sometimes that's the case. Uh, but oftentimes if it's relying on goodwill to be able to do these things, then um, making it as convenient as possible for them to finish is a high priority. I say, I think one of the reasons I actually finished surveys is karma and the, the great hopes that other people will also finish my surveys. Um, but then, yeah, again, these are all great points. Lauren, do you have anything to add on this? Um, also, we can look at it, you know, is qualitative participation as well, not just survey participation. Well, I think that the final thing that I wanted to add are two things probably apply to both. The first is that people are more likely to take the time to participate if the request comes from someone they know. So use the power of your network, use the power of your network's network if you at all can. 
And then the second piece is don't make promises to participants that you don't know that you can keep. So if you're promising them a report within a particular period of time, if you're promising them confidentiality, if you're promising them that the organization or somebody is going to act on the results, just make sure that you can hold up that end of the bargain and, and be honest with them up front, because I think that that's really key to repeated participation in research. All right. I think you guys all made all of the amazing points on that. So I want to close up um, with a question for everybody, which is, what are three things any researcher should keep in mind? Um, ben, what is your three things? Uh, well, how about this? I will share one thing and <laughs> talk a little bit about it. But here's something. Even So taking everything that we've talked about in this conversation, we can have the most perfect, stellar, amazing research design. We can get our, our ideal uh, population of interest in the sample. We can um, have very well-designed questions that perfectly measure all the stuff that we want. And yet, at the end of the day, any research finding from any kind of, um, uh, like either a survey or conversation or however it is you're collecting the data and then perform an analysis of it of some kind, there's going to be some uncertainty there at the end. Like no single research finding is the absolute end all be all of truth forever and always, right? And it's really tempting to present it that way uh, especially if, to a client or to someone when there is, you know, incentive to do that. But just being confident and saying, this is what we know. This is what we're able to say from this information. Here are the strengths of this. And this is what we're more confident in. Here's some of the weaknesses in this data that we've collected. And it's, a, you know, and that's all right. Just being aware of when you're interpreting this to be able to say like, okay, we're more confident in this than we are in this. But still, oftentimes you can go in there with uh, an argument that, you know, at the same time, this is better than any other piece of information out there. So if we're wanting to move forward and make important decisions about things that are important to us, just knowing that um, most good research produces good but not perfect results, right? And just having that in mind and knowing that it's important to be collecting information from a lot of different places in the world, triangulating all of them as you're trying to figure out uh, what's true, what you should make decisions on and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah. There's always a margin and error and um, we're doing research, which is hypothesis rather than laws in the long run. So it's always good to keep that kind of insight in mind. Um, Lauren, what are your, is your kind of things that researchers should keep in mind? I was thinking about the fact that sometimes the hypotheses that don't pan out are more interesting than the ones that do because they really test your core assumptions, especially Holly, you and I have been doing research in a particular area for a long time. And when nothing on a survey correlates the way you expect it to, or you're doing interviews and people tell you something profoundly different from what you expected, it can be really jarring and you're not sure what you're going to go create from that, what you're going to tell people based on it. But sometimes after a while, that's where the magic really happens. Awesome. Andre? So to Lauren's earlier point, I think being a researcher, you automatically kind of have a somewhat inquisitive nature. But just reminding researchers how important it is to be inquisitive and kind of dig in to get answers to the questions. Um, and have a research question in mind. So I mentioned that earlier, but just really want to kind of horn in on that. And then also know and utilize your resources. So I don't know that all researchers utilize their resources enough before they decide to go in and create a survey or do a project. Like it's so important to 
have that secondary research, tap into your subject matter experts and the networks that you have available. You know, really establish a community, um, you know, of other researchers and data people that you can tap into um, to discuss your research efforts, because I don't recommend conducting research in a bubble. You know, some of the greatest research happens when great minds come together and share information. Um, it really allows for innovation and taking your research to the next level. So, Excellent. I think you guys all hit on like the a lot of the major ones. Research isn't perfect. Um, we also have to make sure that we're not, especially if we have a lot of subject matter expertise, not to being dismissive of something because that's what the algorithm in the back of our head that's already built says this is this or this is not this. Um, but being able to keep be open and and find new interesting things and the need to work research is not done in a bubble. One person cannot exceed, succeed by themselves. Um, it takes a village in its own way of your peers, your other subject matter experts, people to just brainstorm things with. Um, as far as like, what are the right questions we should be asking? What what is um, what is as you know for your example? You know, I think I've done that with you before, Andrea, where I was doing a data visualization, like. As a person who's creating that stuff, what is important for you to understand and then from your end users as well? Um, so I think those are all great points. Um, thank you all for the great conversation and the insights. And thank you all for listening to this APQC podcast. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to APQC podcast and visit APQC.org to learn more and have a great rest of your day. Mm -hmm.